Hello, everyone. Welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I hope you all had a good weekend. We had a great weekend. We went to a birthday party, and then we got to go to a wedding and even had a chance to enjoy some of the pretty weather we've been having lately. So this week, we are back in Houston, and we're back in the 1980s. Houston in the early 80s was a tough place to be. It had earned the unsavory title of murder capital of the world, second to Detroit, Michigan, which is where our lovely fellow we're talking about today started his life of crime before he decided to come to the Lone Star State. And from time to time, he also liked to slip into Canada too. The press called him the Sunday morning slasher, but his real name is Carl, a.k.a. Coral Eugene Watts. He is considered to be the most prolific serial killer in the United States. He confessed to 12 murders, but it is suspected that he killed up to 100 women and that he started his life of crime at the early age of 15. Now, if that alone isn't frightening enough for you, just wait until you hear the details. Now, I will say this. One of the scariest things to me is that he was on both Michigan and Texas police radars, but he was smart enough not to get caught and not to leave evidence. Both police departments tracked him and watched him. So this isn't a case of some criminal falling through the cracks or police departments not communicating with each other like you see so much of the time. He was that good at not getting caught. And he was almost let out of prison to start all over again. So this week we're going to start in Michigan. And then next week we'll talk about his crimes in Texas. There are so many victims that I don't just want to try to run through everything because when I, I mean, you're going to be shocked the longer I talk to you this week, the longer we go over this because it's amazing at all the women that Coral Watts attacked or murdered and he was able to go as long as he was especially when police were watching him. But he didn't leave any evidence for them so they could convict him. So um, let's start with Carl Watts' early life. Carl Eugene Watts was born in Killeen, Texas on November 7th, 1953. His parents were Richard and Dorothy May, and they were originally from Colwood, West Virginia. And Carl's father had been transferred to Fort Hood in Killeen. Now, supposedly, three days after Carl was born, his parents packed up and moved back to West Virginia. A year later, they welcomed a little girl into their family, and they named her Sharon Yvonne. In 1955, Carl's father, Richard, up and left his family without any word or reason why, and they never saw Richard again. So Dorothy packed her kids up and drove to Inkster, Michigan, a town located about 15 miles west of Detroit. And she took a job as an art teacher at a high school in Detroit. The family frequently, though, would go back to visit West Virginia and spend time with Dorothy's mother, Lula Mae Young. 
Now, Carlin's grandparents were very close. He even adopted the thick Appalachian drawl that his grandparents and cousins spoke in. He liked the way his cousins would draw his name out. And when they said it, it sounded like Coral, not Carl. He thought Coral sounded much better. So we asked his mother to start calling him Coral instead of Carl. And so she agreed. As a child, Coral's grandmother described him as a good little boy. He liked to stay close to her and his mother. She said that even as he got older and other boys became interested in girls, her Carl did not like to go and stay out all night. He liked to stay home with her. Now that should have been their first warning that something was up. Because let's be honest, most teenagers don't want to hang out and spend time with their grandmother and their mom on weekend nights. Coral Watts struggled in school, but he worked very hard and he studied a lot because it was important to him to earn good grades. But in 1961, Watts contracted meningitis. And if you're not familiar with what meningitis is, it's a viral infection that causes inflammation of the membrane that surrounds the brain and the spinal cord. And for some people, it's, a, it's very light and they get over it very quickly. But other times, it can be very serious and can lead to memory problems and other types of brain damage. So, I bet you already have figured out that Coral's case was not a light case. Because, I don't know why, but so many serial killers, when you find out about their background, have some kind of brain injury in life. And it's always so interesting to me. You know, were they born that way? Or did the brain injury cause it? Or did the brain injury just make them more susceptible to what they were probably already going to end up becoming? I don't know. Just a thought. So Coral did. He suffered from a horrible, debilitating fever. And that put him at Herman Kiefer Hospital for a very long extended stay. Now, while he was there, they also discovered that not only did the poor child have meningitis, he also had polio. So, not only did he end up staying in the hospital for a very, very long time, but because he had meningitis and polio, they isolated him from all the other patients. So, he was this little boy in third grade, very, very sick and completely isolated. So that alone, besides any kind of brain damage, would be very hard on anyone, let alone a little child. Now, after he got over the polio and the meningitis, Coral Watts uh, ended up missing the, let me backtrack a little bit. Coral Watts ended up missing the entire year of third grade because he was so sick. He did not go at all. And because of this, since he already struggled in school, he never really recovered academically. And on top of that, he would complain after recovering from the meningitis and the polio that he had problems remembering things and his memory was foggy. In 1962, Dorothy married a mechanics assistant from Detroit named Norman Caesar. Coral's stepfather had six children of his own, and then Dorothy and Norman once they were married, had two children together 
And then, of course, there was Coral and his sister. So the home was extremely crowded. And this meant that it was very easy to get overlooked. Watts' sister said that he was always very quiet and introverted. She said he always held everything in and didn't say much. But when he did finally get upset, it was very volatile. Now, despite being busy and crowded, by all accounts, the household was stable and Watts' parents were very supportive. Watts later tried to claim that his parents were abusive and especially his mother was abusive and that his stepfather was a drunk. But note that that has never been able to be corroborated by anyone else. All of Coral's brothers and sisters deny this and say that, uh, no, their household, yes, busy, crowded, but a good home. And a lot of experts think that Coral just used this as a way to try to reason out why he committed the crimes and why, and you'll see this, why he just hates women. But really, it looks like he just enjoyed it, which is real scary. So even though Watts suffered academically, he excelled in sports and he worked through his frustrations and his temper on the field. He even said that part of the reason that he liked sports was because he could be as aggressive as he liked on the field and not get into trouble. So if that's not a telling comment right there, I don't know what is. Besides football and basketball, Watts also became a Golden Gloves boxer. But he quit boxing, even though he was really good, he didn't like to get hit himself. And he even confided in his sister, I can't take a punch. Which really just infuriates me. Because the more we talk about him and you hear how he liked to beat his victims, you know, come on, guy. You love beating up on people, but you can't take a punch yourself. In fact, in one of his interrogations, he starts crying because it's too much for him to handle. But anyway, we'll get to all that in a little bit. So by the age of 15, Watts was only reading at a fourth grade level, but he didn't really care. He'd lost all interest in school academically, and he was really only there for the sports. Because on the field or on the track, he was a star. His first run-in with the law happened at 7.30 a.m. on June 25th, 1969 when he was only 15. Watts had decided that he was going to start a paper route in Detroit to earn some extra spending money. And one morning, while he was out delivering papers on his regular route, he attacked 26-year-old Joan Gave, one of his regular customers. This was a lady he saw all the time. He knocked on her door, and when she opened it, he punched her square in the face. He never said a word to her. He wasn't provoked. He just punched her square in the face. And then he began to punch her repeatedly until she was able to get a breath in and scream bloody murder. This scared Watts, and so he took off and left the scene. But instead of running home or trying to hide, he just went back to his regular route and finished delivering the papers, and then he went on home. And you're going to see that's how bold he is and also impulsive. So four days later, police show up at Coral Watts' house and arrest the 15-year-old. He didn't show any emotion. And um, when they asked Watts why he attacked this lady, he calmly said, 
I just felt like beating someone up. And this will become a patter- pattern for him. He shows little emo- emotion and no remorse for any of the horrible crimes that he commits. Uh, also, the more we talk about Coral Watts, you're going to see that uh, even though he struggles academically, he's very street smart and very savvy, and that's what makes him so hard to catch. But instead of going to a juvenile detention center, they took Watts to the Lafayette Mental Clinic, a forensic psychiatry center in Detroit. While he was there, Watts admitted that he had sex for the first time at age 14, but he really didn't have much interest in girls. He told the doctors that he was taught to believe that sex was wicked behavior. So it kind of goes back to grandma saying that he really wasn't interested in girls. He liked to stay home with her. But I guess he thought it was the thing to do. I, I don't know. They didn't really elaborate on that. Watts did tell doctors at the center that he had dreams of beating up and killing women. And when the doctor asked him how these dreams made him feel, he said, I feel better after I have one. The whole time he was there, Watts never expressed any remorse for beating gave up. And Dr. Ainsworth reported that he believed that Coral was an impulsive individual who had a passive aggressive orientation to life. He said there was no evidence of psychosis when he examined Coral and that although there was some confusion, in his thinking when the situation became overly complex, he didn't think that there was really anything wrong with him mentally. Dr. Ainsworth concluded that Watts was a paranoid young man who was struggling for control of strong homicidal impulses and that his behavior controls were faulty and that he had a high potential for violent acting out and he was considered very dangerous. The clinic. Now, here's the thing, though. The doctor said all these very scary things about Coral Watts, but instead of recommending that he stay for a while, instead, the clinic recommended that they would just give him some outpatient treatment, and they let him go. So, on his 16th birthday, November 7th, 1969, he was released back into the custody of his parents. Now, Watts did report back to Lafayette mental clinic for treatment over the next five years, but he only showed up to 10 appointments. At this time, he also started using drugs. He started using marijuana, meth, and a variety of different pills. And he spent less and less time with his friends and got into more trouble at school for poor behavior with girls. Watts's mother helped him with his studies, and he was able to graduate from high school in 1973 at the age of 19. Now, because Watts was such an athlete, he received a scholarship to Lane College to play football in Jackson, Tennessee, but he never actually got to play because he sustained a severe knee injury that ended his football career. So Watts dropped out of college and went back home to his mother and stepfather and worked as a mechanic for six months at e Transport. In early 1974, Watts went back to the Lafayette Mental Clinic for a checkup. He said that nothing had really changed since he had been there, 
and he was still suffering from the same problems. They reevaluated him and said that it appeared that Watts was struggling with his sexuality and he had a strong impulse to beat up women. Well, we kind of already know that. It also said he suffered from primitive thoughts and fantasies, but the doctors didn't elaborate on that, so I'm not quite sure what primitive thoughts and fantasies means. Watts tried college again, and he enrolled at Western Michigan University on July 2nd, 1974. He moved into Vandercook Hall, a dormitory on campus, and shared a room with two other roommates. And he also got a job at the university cafeteria. But of course, we know that Cora Watts doesn't like school. So I'm sure no one is surprised that he really didn't spend any time in class. And instead, he spent his days playing ping pong and watching TV. Also, while he was in college, his intense hatred for women grew stronger. On October 25th, 1974, Lenore Nazaki was in her apartment near campus. It was 10.45 a.m. when she heard a knock at her door. She opened the door, but she left the chain on so that, you know, it was just cracked a little bit. And she saw an African-American man standing outside. And he asked, is Charles home? Now, by the way, it may mean nothing, but Charles is the name of one of Watts's brothers. So, I don't know. Maybe he just picked it out of thin air, or maybe there's some connection. Not sure. Nazaki said that no one named Charles lived there, and she told him that maybe it was one of the neighbors that lived nearby. So, the man left, but he came back and uh, about 10 minutes later and knocked again on her door. So, again, she partially opened the door, and the man again asked her if Charles was there. But this time he seemed more urgent than before. Nazaki said again, you know, Charles doesn't live here. But she said, would you like to leave a note? And when she did, Charles, uh, when she did, she took the chain off the door this time. And she turned her back to Charles, to Charles, I'm sorry, to Coral Watts to grab a notepad, a notepad and a pen. And he walked into her apartment and jumped on top of her. He got he straddled her and got on top of her and put his knee on her chest and his hands around her throat. And he started to fondle her crotch. Well, Nazaki screamed and kicked at Watts with all her might. She fought him tooth and nail. Watts choked her, though, and even though she fought, he choked her until she passed out. And then he left her there on the floor. Four days later... Watts was at another apartment complex near Western Michigan University using the same routine. He was walking around, knocking on doors, asking for Charles. In fact, some of the residents even complained about him. The next day on October 30th, 1974, at 1.44 p.m., 19-year-old psychology student Gloria Steele was found dead in her apartment, and she had been brutally murdered. She had been stabbed 33 times in the chest and had a crushed windpipe. The weapon, a wooden carving tool, was lodged in her spine. She had not been raped, and nothing had been taken from her apartment. And that's another thing that stays consistent about all of Watt's attacks. He never sexually assaults his victims, and he never robs them. 
Now, he evolves and he changes the way he attacks sometimes, but he never sexually assaults them or robs them. It really does seem like he just has a pure hatred of women and he enjoys inflicting great pain on them. There were no witnesses to the actual crime itself, but a neighbor passed a nice-looking African-American man heading up the apartment staircase. The woman said she called out to the man and asked him what he needed, and he said, I'm looking for Charles. The woman asked, why are you here? And he replied to her, I don't know. And then he turned around and walked off. Now, the WMU police chief, John Cease, believed that Watts was Gloria Steele's murderer, but it was almost impossible for him to prove because before Gloria's family called the police, they cleaned up the crime scene. So basically they destroyed all the evidence. Now the family denies that they had done anything to the crime scene, but I'm sure that they walked in and were in shock and wanted to make it all go away. But like Chief Cease said, then that gave them nothing to go on. And he was very frustrated by this because he truly believed that they probably could have solved this in about 72 hours if they had left things alone. But the medical examiner was the first on the scene, and he estimated Gloria's time of death between 11.30 a.m. and 1.30 p.m. But that was really the only other piece of evidence besides the murder left weapon that was left at the scene for them to go on. Chief Cease had worked on more than 150 homicides, and he said it was the most violent one he'd ever seen. He said that Gloria was stabbed over and over and over again. On November 12, 1974, Watts was back to his routine again. He was at a new apartment complex, still near campus though, knocking on doors and looking for Charles. At 12.12 p.m., Diane K. Williams heard a knock on her door, and just like Lenore Nazaki, Williams gave the man a piece of paper to write on. Now, the man grabbed the piece of paper and forced his way into her apartment. He grabbed her by the throat and threw her onto the couch and then threw her down onto the floor. Diane told police, I fought as hard as I could. They struggled on the floor, and during the struggle, Diane's phone began to ring. So, thinking quickly, she knocked the telephone off the hook and started screaming for help as loud as she could. Her husband's secretary was on the other end of the line, and she immediately called the police. Now, the man was scared, and he jumped up and he took off. But Diane got up and ran after him and saw him get into a tan Pontiac Grand Prix and speed off. Diane was able to give police a description of her attacker. Diane Williams and Lenore Nazaki were both able to identify Coral Watts in a lineup. So on November 16, 1974, Watts was arrested and charged with the assault and battery of both Lenore Nazaki and Diane Williams. So that's the thing. And that's the frustrating thing about this. Some of his victims are left alive and they're able to identify this man, but he doesn't leave enough evidence at the scene and so they can convict him for attacking people, but they can't convict him for the murders that he 
that he's guilty of. And he's learned to work the system now. So two days later when they bring him in, he admits that he was at Gloria Steele's apartment complex, but he denies killing her. And then he clams up and demands a lawyer. And he was released later that day. On December 6, 1974, Watts was interviewed by the 9th District Court investigator Ronald Freemeyer. And he admitted to Freemeyer that he had attacked at least 15 other young women. He said mostly they were thin, attractive white women. And he claimed that he had averaged about two attacks a week. Again, he clammed up and said he wanted a lawyer. So Roman T. Plazic represented Watts. He discussed his options with Watts, and Plazic said that Watts wanted to voluntarily commit himself to the Kalamazoo Mental Hospital. Because like I said, Watts was learning to work the system, and he knew if he voluntarily committed himself to a mental institution, then he wouldn't have to spend time in jail. So, Watts also told authorities that he should never be allowed back out on the street. On December 12, 1974, police obtained a warrant to search Watts' home, hoping to get some evidence that could tie him to Gloria Steele's murder. They found several carving tools, but there was nothing there to actually physically tie him to Watt, to Gloria Steele's murder. So less than a week later, Watts was sentenced to 45 days in jail at the Kalamazoo Mental Hospital. Watts was learning to work the system. But it wasn't like his stay at the hospital was terrible. In fact, it was more like a vacation. He played pool and he played basketball. And he was examined by a slew of doctors. And one of his doctors was Dr. James Catalias. And he noted that Watts doesn't hear voices. He doesn't believe God's talking to him. And he doesn't have any other preoccupations. In fact, all his mental faculties are intact. He believed that Watts had probably killed some of his victims that he admitted to attacking. And he said that Watts suffered from antisocial personality disorder. He also said that Watts blames others for his criminal acts and doesn't take responsibility for himself. He said when Watts was asked if it bothered him that he attacked women, he said, no, getting caught bothers me. He asked Watts, aren't you concerned about what you did to these women? And he replied, no. Yet again, even though all these doctors believe that he's going to attack again, and his lawyer and police officers talk about how violent he is, he was released back out on the street, and he found a job sweeping up in a local church and moved back in with his mother and stepfather. Now, this time, while Watts was out, he met a woman named Dolores Howard, and he got her pregnant. Uh, Watts seemed to treat Dolores well, and their daughter, Nikisha, was born on January 3rd, 1979. But once the little girl was born, he refused to even claim her, and he took off just like his own father had done when he was a child. Now, the reason... Coral took off, it was discovered later, was it because he decided he was going to marry a different woman named Valeria Goodwill. Now, Valeria Goodwill reported that her marriage to Coral was very strange. 
She said he would have strange dreams. And it was obvious they were very violent because he would talk in his sleep and he would punch and he would fight other people. She said you would have to be very careful around him because if you got too close to try to wake him up, he was very likely to hit you too. And a lot of times his dreams were so physical and violent, he would end up on the floor. He also quit his job and began just staying at home and leaving trash all over the floor and melting candle wax on the dining room table and doing all these bizarre things. He also would just get up in the middle of the night and leave the house and be gone for hours. He would never tell her where he went or what he was doing. But sometimes when he came home, he was, his clothes were torn and oftentimes might even be dirty. Now, one of those nights that he was out on one of his jaunts, he was arrested for disorderly prowling outside a woman's home in Southfield, which was only 15 miles away from his home. This arrest placed him squarely on the Detroit Police Department's radar. There had been approximately five attacks on young women in the Southfield area the year before. The attacker would break in and stand over the women in their beds with either his hand over their mouth or on their breasts or over their genitals. And wouldn't you know it that Watts resembled each woman's description of her attacker. Now things were about to get worse. He was going to ratchet up a bunch and his attacks were going to start coming more and more frequently. On October 8th, 1979, 22-year-old Peggy Pockmara was found strangled in her front yard in Detroit. Again, she had not been sexually assaulted or robbed. On Halloween night, 44-year-old Detroit news reporter Jean Klein was killed. She had been brutally stabbed 13 times outside her home and left in her front yard. It was Halloween and people walking by at first thought that it was a Halloween prank. She laid there for hours before someone finally discovered her and called the police. But again, she had not been sexually assaulted or robbed, but witnesses noticed a nice-looking African-American man walking down her street. That's the thing. He doesn't try to hide. He's just there, out in the open. He doesn't wear a disguise. He doesn't do anything. On December 1st, 1979, Helen May Dutcher was stabbed 12 times outside of H&M Cleaners. But this time there was a witness. Joseph Foy witnessed the murder and he gave police a description of the man that sounded very much like Coral Watts. Two other women's bodies were discovered in late 1979. Don Jerome's body was found in nearby Taylor and 32-year-old Mimi Haddad's headless body was found in Allen Park. She had parked at the park and gotten out of her car, and that is when Coral attacked her. And unfortunately, her head was never found. On March 10th, 1980, Hazel Conneth, 23, was strangled in Detroit. She was found in the driveway of her boyfriend's home, tied to a chain-link fence with her belt cinched around her neck. And the same as always, she had not been raped or robbed. But his attacks are getting more frequent and more brutal. Three weeks after that, at 4.15 a.m. on March 31st, 26-year-old Denise Dunmore's strangled body was found in a parking lot. Then, 17-year-old Shirley Small's body 
was found April 20th at 6.54 a.m. She had been stabbed in the heart by a scalpel-like weapon, and she was only 70 feet away from her home. She and her boyfriend had been at the local skating rink that night, and they had gotten into a fight. Now, Shirley was very strong-willed, and she was mad, and so she refused to let her boyfriend drive her home. She told him she was going to walk the five miles to her house. Her boyfriend followed her in the car for over a mile, trying to convince her to please get back in the car. You don't have to talk to me, but let me at least drive you home. But she refused. She said no. She wasn't getting in the car with him. She was mad at him, and she'd walk. So he finally gave up, and that was when Coral Watts found her and attacked her. Now, by now, Coral Watts's wife was tired of his weird, crazy, strange behavior, and she filed for divorce. After the divorce, things got even more frequent. On May 31st, 1980, 27-year-old Linda Montero was found strangled outside her home in Detroit. She had just returned home from a church meeting. Watts's Brown Grand Prix was reported leaving the scene. Ann Arbor, Michigan homicide detectives believed they knew who was responsible for the attacks and the murders. Coral, they believed it was Coral Watts, and they set their sights on him. They were determined that they were going to prove he was the one doing all this. And so they started watching him around the clock. One night, they watched him. He stalked this poor young woman. He followed her in his car down the street. And they said it was obvious that he enjoyed every minute of it. He would follow her slowly, and then the poor girl noticed that she was being followed. So she ran and ducked, ducked into a doorway. So Coral backed off. When she thought she was safe and started walking again, he appeared again in his car and followed her some more. He very much enjoyed it, but when he realized that police were following him, he lost the girl. She was able to get away. And they said even from inside the car, they could tell he completely lost it and went crazy because he wasn't able to get her. Uh, and, and he just gave up and went home that night. Now, the police monitored him 24 hours a day. Someone was always following him. But because he knew they were after him, he was able to control himself. And even though he went out every night looking for victims, he restrained himself and he didn't attack anyone. So they weren't able to witness any attacks. At one point, they even put a tracking device on his car. But... Watts found it and removed it. The police were so frustrated because they knew that this was their guy, but they had no physical evidence to arrest him. And then Watts disappeared. What police didn't know at that time was that Coral Watts was scared and he knew they were going to catch him. So after talking to some friends, he decided that Houston, Texas was the place to be, and he left Michigan and was on the road to Texas. But Button wasn't giving up. So that's where we're going to stop for this week. Like I said, there's so much, and there's so much more to come. So next week, we'll discuss 
once Watts hits Texas and what happens. Thank you for listening today. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and leave a review. Also, tell a friend about Texas True Crime. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your ideas or your thoughts. If there's a case that you're interested in that you think would be a great idea for the podcast, please send it to me. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod, or you can email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. Let me know and have a great week. We'll see you next week. Bye.